Okay, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15. I'll be reading Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Father, this morning my prayer is that no soul in here will fail to see the beauty of how You save. Of how You seek and You find and You secure wretched, broken, undeserving sinners and bring them into Your eternal fold to enjoy You through Your Son, Jesus. Not only now, in portion in this life, but forever and ever in the resurrection to come. So to that end, let what Luke is doing here in this part of this Gospel, the words, Lord Jesus, that You spoke, let them penetrate our hearts and let me therefore represent them faithfully to the glory of Your name. Amen. Now let's get the context. It's right there in verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. And now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. All right, let's feel it. We've seen this before in Luke's narrative. The, these tax collectors are Jewish men who have purchased a franchise or the right from Roman officials to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. And the more they can collect above what they owe, the Roman government is their profit. This whole system was crooked. And these guys within Palestine, within the Jewish community, were considered as the scum of the earth. They sucked money out of their own people because of their own greed. Because of their occupation, they were ceremonially unclean not allowed in the temple. The religious Jews saw these guys, who were Jewish, as unsavable. And the text says, they were coming near to Jesus in order to listen to Him. Tax collectors. And the other group drawing near, according to the text, are called sinners or coming. Now, <laughs> you see it? Now the tax collectors and 
sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. It sounds really strange to us because what are you talking about? We know that everybody is a sinner. So what are they, what are they referring to? Well, it's not odd to them in first century Judaism. The Pharisees and the scribes reserved this term sinners for those people who lived particularly immoral lives. Didn't keep the traditions of washing correctly or lived in open sexual sin. And so sinners referred to them and those who had occupations that would put them in that class. And no respectable religious Jewish person would ever eat with them, hang out with them. And so, sinners refers to those living in sexual immorality, homosexuality, prostitutes, and for them, it meant many people who had particular diseases because in the first century mind, many of these scribes and Pharisees would attribute that to, whoa, that means they probably have committed some great sin. These types, is what Luke is letting us know, are unapproachable. Don't get into presence. Don't go into their house. Don't invite them over and eat with them. And so Luke sets the scene in verses 1 to 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Now let's try to suspend our historically negative attitude toward the Pharisees for a moment, or we may fail to see that what's going on in them can be happening in us. These guys are the religious fundamentalists of the day. They're the self-righteous legalists. And they had been seen, and we've seen this in Luke's narrative, they had been seeing Jesus eat with such people throughout His ministry. And it really got under their skin. Because to them, it's obviously wrong for Jesus to do that. Like it would be for any Jew. Jesus is guilty, is charged. And this guy's a religious leader? A rabbi with a large following? So Luke lets us know the only thing they could do is together and with one another grumble. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Because separatism and their Jewish religual, religious cultural laws of kosher and washing was everything to them. Don't cause yourself to be unclean by loving, hanging out with those who are not in your group. And learn the lesson here for a moment about what Jesus does about that. He knows they're grumbling, and he couldn't care less. He did not let the way they gave glances at him cause him to back off of God's love towards other people. So the real question, as we look at how Luke opens up chapter 15, is, was Jesus, like they thought, wrong? Was it wrong for him to hang out with prostitutes, tax collectors, and people who couldn't care less about the pharisaical religious laws of how you wash before you eat? The answer is no. That's why he came. He came to reach, to save, to gather sinners. It was the religious fundamentalists who were legalists that were dead wrong. And now in this chapter 15, 
Jesus gives three parables, three short stories. Well, the third one's pretty long, the prodigal son. Three parables to illustrate what he, as the Messiah, is about in his ministry. Now, before we go to the parables, what I want to do is take the last was it four weeks or so from the beginning of chapter 14 and get a helicopter view of what we've seen which puts these parables in their context so we're going to go back to the beginning and see the flow of what Dr. Luke is trying to get us to see so you remember the beginning of chapter 14 of Luke Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house on a Saturday for a dinner party it's the Sabbath And what we see through the rest of chapter 14 is Jesus making it crystal clear of how different purposefully He is from the religious leaders and the Pharisees of the day. He's eating. It's the Sabbath. There is a swollen man who's in the room. He's got dropsy. Jesus looks at these guys around the table and he says, Tell me, you think it's okay if this man gets healed today on the Sabbath or not? He knows he's trapping them. Their mouth is shut tight. He heals them, he sends him away, and then he's got more words for their religious hypocrisy. And what's their response? Nothing. There's no worship. This guy just got healed of a horrific disease that was going to kill him. There is zero worship. There's no repentance for the hardness of their heart. There's just silence. Now, why? That's what Jesus goes on to put his finger on in verses 7 to 11 of chapter 14. If you look at verse 7, and now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So in other words, the reason these guys couldn't care less about this man and his suffering and being healed is because they were so wrapped up in trying to get praised by other people. They were wrapped up in the approval of others. They could not see the glory of what it would mean to give selfless, sacrificial love, like Jesus just did in healing the guy with dropsy. I mean, who in the world cares about this guy with dropsy? Don't break our Sabbath rules, Jesus. Besides that, he probably deserves that anyway because of how sinful he is. And then Jesus stuns him with what he says in verse 11 of chapter 14. He stuns these guys directly saying, here's your destiny if you do not change. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He says people are caught up into self-exaltation, they do not have it within them to be inconvenienced by meeting the real needs of others. Particularly if that other person doesn't have anything to give back to them. Let me just put this in. That's why over the last two weeks in this church with a small church you got few to pick from and we have three families who have been in need of being served meals and dinner at one time that's overwhelming and as a pastor I can't tell you how 
It has warmed my heart to see love step up while these women in these households are recovering. And that's the connection that has been going on. The more a person is concerned about self-exaltation, the more they will be indifferent to the need, the pain of others. If there's nothing in it for them immediately. And so Jesus goes on in chapter 14, in verses 12 to 14, to press the issue of selfish, self-centered, self-exaltation. He said also to the man who had invited him to the dinner party, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus says to these religious people, if you guys devote your lives to having each other over for dinner and reaching out only if those people somehow can repay you, oh, they'll praise you. That's payment. They got a lot of money. That might help you in the future. They might invite you back over for dinner. Then you'll invite them. He says, that's why you guys are indifferent to this man with dropsy. He has nothing he could give back. That's why you're indifferent to the poor, to the lame, the blind. You're indifferent to serving others if they do not have something you need from them. There's nothing in it for you. They can't invite you back. They can't help your career. They can't help you get exalted in the eyes of others in your synagogue or your local church. It feels like a waste of time and a waste of money. This is what Jesus is saying to them. Because you don't get it. He's saying if you guys got it, you would understand verse 14. And you will be blessed. If you invite the lame, the blind, those who can't pay you back, you will be blessed. Precisely because they can't pay you back. You will be blessed because you will be repaid. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, he's saying that's the power to get freed from the bondage of selfish self-exaltation and apathy towards others' pain in life which becomes an inconvenience to us. Because <laughs> I might have to help. He says the power to get free from that sin that we constantly battle is you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. In the future, where your hope is supposed to be laying anyway, where your anchor is supposed to be rooted, Jesus tells us what frees us to hang out with the lowly. What frees us to be inconvenienced in meeting the need of another in crisis is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the confidence that this world is not the main world. There's a resurrection coming forever. And then, and Jesus is still at the dinner party, Jesus launches into the parable about God's great banquet that's coming. See verse 16? 
A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And then Jesus proceeds to tell these guys, you are totally blowing it. You religious elites have been invited first, but because of your worldliness, your lands. Sorry, I can't come. I'm busy with land. I'm busy getting married. I got a new wife. I bought new oxen. Because of that, you guys are choosing not to come to God's banquet. And so Jesus says, the host of the banquet says to His servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the implication is that the church is that servant. Verse 23, Go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that My house may be full. Until Jesus' second coming, the implication is clear. There is still room in that big banqueting hall. And we can be assured that He intends to fill it. So as we go out in our daily lives, to our families, to the workplace, to our culture, our neighbors, Saturday evangelism table. If you haven't gone, go. We are to still keep telling people, come. Even though you will find a good percentage like the parable of Jesus. Yeah, great. Sorry, but I'm kind of busy now with kids' sports. Busy with a wife. Busy with lands. And they will disregard the invitation. But the church, the servant, all of us who call ourselves Christian are to continue to go. And to tell people. This is the flow of chapter 14. We're going to get to our text. To tell them, come! And in order to enjoy the new, the different taste of the food on God's table. Oh, it's wonderful food that you can imagine, but in order for you to enjoy that taste at that banquet, you need to stop shoveling the white bread of worldliness into your souls. You need to be hungry because if you don't, you will not find the invitation to the banqueting table of eternal life. You will not find it appetizing. And that's why all of us sinners who turn away from the offer of the gospel, turn away. It's one simple reason. It's not appetizing. Because we're filled with satisfying the taste buds of our sinful finite, worldly souls. Now, if you're here, that's why last week Jesus laid all of that out. That's what He was saying. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. Remember verse 25 of chapter 14. Luke makes this switch. He says, now, He just gave the parable of the invitation to the banquet. And now, Multitudes were following Jesus. And he didn't turn around and say, Whew, that's awesome. He turned around and says, Hold on. No, no, let's make sure you understand the invitation. What he does, he turns to them, as we saw last week, and he clarifies to everyone that in order to enjoy God's banquet means you must stop feeding your face. With the world is your God. That's what he said. 
He just said it a little bit more starkly than I just did. This is how he said that last week. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, do you see it yet? That's the flow going on in Luke's narrative. Coming right after the parable of the great invitation to the banquet, Jesus says, in effect, the banquet hall is huge. The food is delicious. The invitation is sent indiscriminately to every race, tribe, ethnicity, class. And the entrance requirement is that you are more hungry for what God serves at the banquet than for the finite temporal world and what it serves you daily. He's saying, be more hungry for God's banquet, for Christ than you are for your father and your mother and your spouse and your children and your own life. He's saying the taste buds of your souls have to be born again or you'll never come. And that's why Jesus came. That's why He came and died and rose from the dead to create that in many. And the invitation to the banquet goes not just to many, but it's supposed to go to all. He's reaching out to scribes and Pharisees and religious hypocrites and prostitutes and tax collectors. It goes out. And then this is what happens. Greedy, money-loving extortioners. Those who live for sinful sex. For drunkenness. Religious hypocrites. Good, basic pagans. What happens is this. Many of these people get changed. And they accept the invitation to eternal life. If they have ears to hear. You see the last sentence in chapter 14? Jesus' last words in chapter 14 is, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's the connection to our text. That's the connection to verse 1 of chapter 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then Luke flows us right into the next verse. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to hear Jesus. It's amazing. It's anybody, if they have the experience of having ears to hear, if they have the experience of having a new heart transplant, as the Old Testament talks about the new covenant, If somehow the taste buds of their soul has been changed for the banqueting table of God, they come. 
It is amazing. And many of you know your own story. It is amazing the kinds of people who all of a sudden have ears to hear the invitation to the banquet. Here's the question. How in the world is that happening? That's our text. Jesus gives three parables to illustrate how it is that people are having ears to hear and they are coming to the invitation. So remember how Luke starts off chapter 15 with the context. And it's the big question just hanging in the air. Is why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? The answer is because God intends to fill His house. And so He sent His eternal Son, who is God, to become a human being in order that He may live the life of perfect righteousness where Adam, our father, failed, and He may be sacrificed on a cross, bearing the wrath of God and rise again from the dead. And then, from that message, that He, even in His earthly ministry, would go out and extend the invitation to come freely to the banqueting table. And what Jesus is doing by eating with tax collectors and sinners and not caring what the religious elite thought is that He's modeling the Father's heart. He's modeling the purpose of His ministry. And so, the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, you're going to deal with them both together because he's saying the same thing in both. It's the same point, and they have the same structure. Structure is loss, the search, and then they're found, and then there's great joy. So see, both of them begin with loss. Verse 4, Jesus says, What man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them, in verse 8, or what woman having ten silver coins if she loses one? So, Jesus is saying here, I am the shepherd who's lost a sheep. I am the woman who's lost a coin. And whether a person knows it or not, every person who has not been found by Jesus, is lost. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, they can't see it, they don't have eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers are presently lost. They are like a sheep, just helpless prey to the wolves of eternal destruction. Unless God intervenes. Unless the shepherd goes out and finds them. See, Jesus goes on to say, both the shepherd and the woman immediately search for the sheep, for the coin. Verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
Or verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? Jesus wants us to feel this so that we'll feel God the Father's heart toward finding sheep or coins, lost sinners. You ever lost a child at Knott's Berry Farm? My wife did. I mean... I mean, we did. No, she, she had Michael. No, she thought I had Michael. We found out no one knew where Michael was for 20 minutes. He was at the lost and found, finally. And I didn't walk around that park. I ran to where I was told lost and found was. And we are all born lost. And God initiates the finding. As Paul said in Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you are saved, you know that it's not because you sought after God. You know, if you know your Bible, it's because God sought after you and rescued you from your condemnation. One commentator tells the story of Harry Ironside, a great Bible teacher of the last century. I'm going to quote it. Ironside told of a new convert who gave his testimony at a church service. With a smile on his face and joy in his heart, the man related how he had been delivered from a life of sin. He gave the Lord all the glory, saying nothing about anything that he had done. The person in charge of the meeting was a legalistic man who did not understand the fact that salvation is totally by God's grace, apart from human merit or work. And so he responded to the young man's comments by saying, You seem to indicate that God did everything when He saved you. Didn't you do your part before God did His? The new Christian jumped to his feet and said, Oh yes! Yes, I did! For more than 30 years I ran away from God as fast as my sins could carry me. That was my part. But God took after me and ran me down. That was His part. That's the point He goes on to say. If you're a believer, you have been found. Notice the passive. He did it. Verse 5-6. to six. And when he, the shepherd, has found the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Verse 9. And when she has found the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. The shepherd and the woman rejoice. And notice, the shepherd didn't find the sheep and get all angry at the sheep and grab a whip and start whipping the sheep back into the herd. He grabbed the sheep put it on his shoulders and carried it back to the flock. That's how Jesus is. This is how He said it in John 10. My sheep, notice the words again in Luke, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice. 
and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand ever. And then comes the divine application in the parables. Verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He says very clearly, God rejoices. He rejoices over one human being who comes to saving repentance. And He does it again and again and again. Now, here's a question. I'm going to put in a parenthesis and just because if you're a thinker, you're looking at the text. Okay, what does that part mean? So, and that's the question. What does it mean when Jesus says here, one sinner repents over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, from the grammar, the text, and everything, there are two valid interpretations. I only think one of them is right, and I'm not positive, but I have an opinion. And both of them, there's no reason why they both cannot be what Jesus intended. So the question is this. When he talks about the 99 who needed no repentance does that refer to those persons who are already saved? They're already in the fold of the sheep because they've already been justified. They've already come to their repentance, have been justified by faith, meaning righteous before God, the 99 righteous. Is that what it means? Any scholars think that's what it means? Or, here's a second choice. In all three of the parables here in chapter 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, are they representing the tax collectors and the sinners who are coming to hear and be saved? And thus, the 99 sheep and the nine coins and the older brother represent the scribes and the Pharisees. If that's what it means, if that's what Jesus meant here, then the 99 who need no repentance would mean those Jews who thought that they were just super good in their religiosity. Super kosher in their ceremonial washings. They were just good enough and clean enough where they did not need repentance. These are the ones that refuse to be baptized by John for repentance. Okay. I think you can kind of feel my opinion. I think that's what he means by the 99. Who need no repentance. In other words, Jesus is using irony to show these in the text, these grumblers, their self-righteous pride. And we've already seen it back in chapter 5 of Luke. Do you remember Jesus again eating with sinners in whose house? Matthew's. The tax collector's house. And in the text, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and Jesus said to them, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, so I use it. Now, obviously Jesus didn't think they were righteous. Truly. He meant the self-righteous deceive. text says, one sinner who truly repents 
one sinner who finds in a field a treasure and covers it up and runs home and sells all that he has to buy the field to have the treasure. Every time that happens, one at a time, there's great joy in heaven. Here's the question. For all of us, and for every kid in this church being raised in Christian families, does that refer to you? If it does, then as the way that Paul put it, Christ to you has become the wisdom of God and the power of God in some miraculous internal way. And you are different. Just take chapter 14 and chapter 15 together and put it together. You're different. Your father and your mother and your wife and your kids are no longer your God. You no longer worship them. Christ is so overwhelmingly desirable. Oh, yeah, the, the part we don't want that, but the choice is Christ and, or not. You pick up your cross and you follow Him. You renounce all your money and the things you own. You can't serve to masters. That, that's what happens according to 14 and 15. Now, here's the question. Why? Why that change called repentance? It's because those persons have been found. By the Savior. That's it. And there is great joy in heaven. And every one of them. And the reason there is such great joy, as we saw in John 10 this morning, Jesus will lose none of them. There is great joy, not because, oh, then tomorrow you might chuck it, because if you're real, he found you. And you will not lose it. You are absolutely secured for heaven. Not because you the sheep are gripping hold of the shepherd so tightly, but because the shepherd has put you on his shoulders and he's gripping you. And he bought you with his blood. And he will lose None of them. If that's you, it means He chose you before He ever created anything. And then, after the fall, when it was time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to purchase lost sheep. You're the one out of a hundred. And then He sent the hound of heaven to track you down. The Holy Spirit to bring the good news of Jesus Christ, of the Gospel, to you. And the Spirit blew. And you had ears to hear. And so you came hearing. If that's you, then know, know it. No matter what you're going through, know it. This great shepherd will never, ever lose you. Through all your trials, through all your take up your cross, Suffering, pain, follow me. He will keep you. If 
you're in here and you have not been found by Christ, here's my exhortation. Get lost. Don't be like the 99 who think they need no repentance. They need no Savior. Wake up to the depths of your sinfulness toward the One who created you. That is, wake up to your lostness. And if you do, He will find you. And then He will rejoice over you one sinner who comes to saving faith, who comes to genuine repentance in Jesus Christ. No wonder a lost captain of a slave trading ship a couple hundred years ago, after having been found by the Savior, wrote the great hymn we're going to sing in a moment. So come, Serge. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, and now I see. Let's worship Him. Let's worship Him who found us. And it cost Him everything. Father, would You even now to those whom You have found through Your Son comfort. Cause our minds and our hearts in the midst of manifold struggles to know the glory of what it is to be found by Jesus and to be secure and to know that You will keep us. And would You cause those who have not been found to miraculously have their eyes open to their lostness and thus awaits your sure search and definite find of them to the glory of your name Lord Jesus Amen